Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 61. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark. And we have two fantastic stories for you this week, so make yourself comfortable, curl up, relax. Let's listen to some stories. First up, we have an unusual story of buccaneers called The Last Great House of Isla Tortuga by Peter M. Ball. Peter lives in Brisbane, Australia, where he manages the Australian Writers' Marketplace and coordinates the biennial GenreCon Writers' Conference. His most recent book is Frost, the second novella in the Flostom series, and his short stories have appeared in Apex magazine, Eclipse 4 and Daily Science Fiction. You can learn more about him and his work via the link on our website. It's read for you today by Matthew Fredrickson. Matthew lives in Memphis, Tennessee, with a rock star plastic surgeon wife. He reads and writes and runs in his spare time. He loves to brew beer, and he'd love to make that his career. You can find him on Twitter as at Swami. So, here is The Last Great House of Isla Tortuga by Peter M. Ball. She enters my name as Tobias Truman. I watch her ink the delicate curve of the capitals, the ostrich feather quill dancing as she writes. My name is entered below Mr. Drummond's, his below the captain, two of the three marked with the swooping X that denotes status as paying guest, a true patron of the house rather than tag-along visitor. The madam ends with a final flourish that leaves the quill poised above a well of ink. Her needle-sharp eyes study me, peering through the thick veil of her lashes. I fidget beneath her gaze until she smiles and turns toward the captain with a raised eyebrow. And the boy? The captain spins on his unsteady legs, stares at me through the haze of rum and ruin that accompanies him whenever we put ashore. He considers the question for a few moments, mocking finger to his pursed lips, 
the barest hint of a smile visible through the tangled mane of his beard. "'The boy! What do you say, Benjamin? Should we give the boy his first tumble?' Mr. Drummond scowls. He is a bookish man, despite his first mate's bluster. Short and straight as a ramrod, still every bit a schoolmaster despite his years at sea. He gives the captain a short nod, neat and efficient. "'Aye,' he says. "'Let the lad sample the wares, if he's fool enough to agree.' "'I am. Fool enough to agree. Fool enough to seek this out. Fool enough to abandon my London name and London comforts for the black swallow in a cabin boy's berth. Fool enough to risk my secrets, just to see the last of the old houses in action. I'm fool enough, and I tell them so. "'Please, Captain.' There is a pause, then. An empty lull that I've learned to recognize as the first sign of a coming storm. I can feel a thrill of fear go down my back, the hair on my neck standing to attention. The captain's smile grows slowly, like the shoals of a hidden reef coming into view too late. Mr. Drummond's face is a grim mask, concealing the clumsy knot of desire and loathing. Taciturn is Mr. Drummond, and a pederast at the best of times. He has sought to take my innocence for the last year, despite the captain's order to the contrary. The madam waits patiently, the nib of her pen paused above the ledger. A bead of ink swells on the tip. I may not have the madam's experience, but I have always been a quick study. I understand my place in this struggle, my role as a sharp knife used to tease the flesh of Ben Drummond's throat. The mate has thought our struggle beneath the captain's notice. Ben Drummond has rarely needed to practice such subtlety. The buggery of cabin boys is common enough, even aboard respectable vessels. Had I set sail on another ship, under the command of any other captain, the question of my first tumble would have been decided long since, and its tragic consequences already played out, for better or for worse. I have been lucky with the Black Swallow, with her crew and her captain, luckier than I deserve, fool that I am, so far from home in my thirteenth year. I force myself to affect excitement an eagerness to see what lies beyond the velvet curtains. My stomach churns, a queasy royal worse than the sickness that plagued my first day on open water. The captain shifts his gaze between Mr. Drummond and me, leering as he fishes coins from their hiding-place beneath his shirt. "'For the boy,' he says, dropping a tarnished gold disc onto the madam's creaking table. The madam palms the coin, adds a flourishing X beside my name. Mr. Drummond's eyes draw deep into his skull. "'Yes,' he says, "'for the boy. May the whores treat him gentle on this special night.' There is laughter, then, laughter from both men, Mr. Drummond's heaving cackle joining with the captain's booming roar. A cold chill settles into my gut as the tension between them eases, the same chill I get when the swallow is becalmed and laying fallow in the water. There are times when it's better to weather the storm and see where it takes you, but I have heard the stories about the old houses, and I know them better than any man aboard the Swallow. I have connived my way here, using Mr. Drummond's hunger as best I can, but I find myself suddenly afraid of what lies beyond. The captain claps my shoulder, pushing me towards the tattered velvet curtain. I draw a deep breath and step across the threshold, into the house of pale flowers, last of the great old houses of Isla Tortuga, ready to find the twice-born whore who will transform Toby Truman forever. The madam leads us along the cobwebbed hall, 
along the floorboards that have been worn smooth with the rolling gait of a hundred thousand sailors, past the walls lined with the yellowed skulls of the dead. The captain walks beside her, exaggerating his drunken stumble. Occasionally he reaches out, rubbing the cranium of an old friend, staining his fingers with bitter oil and dust. Mr. Drummond walks by my side, a quick march with stiff back, eyes focused on the door at the far end, gazing down the impossible length of the hallway. It's the noise that surprises me as we walk, the raucous roar of a drunken crowd dancing and singing to the quick beat of a rolling shanty. Something about the noise seems strangely inappropriate, given the stories that surround the old houses. Every tale tells of the silent ladies, unable to utter a single word on pain of death, quiet as the graves they were rescued from, even in the throes of passion. It seems sacrilege to engage in such revels in their presence, an insult to their sacrifices, even if their customers have never put much faith in God or the Church. It was different once, if you believe the stories. They say the old houses were sacred places, the home of lost secrets and forbidden loves, everything a pirate needed to warm his waterlogged heart. "'You've picked a good night,' the madam says, pausing before the oak door that ends the hallway. "'There is only a small crowd. If you'll amuse yourselves in the parlor for a time, our girls will be with you shortly.' Then she pushes the door open, and the roar of the parlor is doubled. It hits us like a cannon's retort, impossibly loud and stung with a sudden flash of heat. The parlor stinks of pipe-smoke and hot blood. The broken voices of seafaring men singing along with an off-key piano. I once heard a crewman call this place the last great house of ill repute, his voice full of quiet reverence. But I see little to revere in this human flotsam that litters the room. They fill the overstuffed divans and driftwood tables with grey-fleshed girls limping on twisted legs, or serving drinks with an arm that has been broken and poorly set before healing. A dead girl emerges from the throng, ready to lead us to the table. Her left eye is missing, the flesh around the empty cavity an angry and puckered scar. She holds forward three fingers, then waves her hand to indicate we should follow. As she turns, I can see the clumsy stitching that has repaired a wound to the back of her skull. It looks deep, like the aftermath of an axe-blow or the crushing weight of an iron belaying pin. The stitches hold the black flesh closed, barely concealing the rot at the seam. Mr. Drummond strides past me, following her as she cuts through the crowd of flesh. I hesitate for a moment, hands on my ears, trying not to breathe in the scent of unwashed sailors and death. The weight of the captain's arm settles across my shoulders, his thin lips drawing close to my ears. "'Relax,' he says. "'They use the broken girls as waitresses. The pretty ones are kept for the back rooms.' I nod. The captain offers me a wide grin, his first genuine smile of the evening. "'Come,' he says, breath hot against the side of my face. First we'll drink. Then we'll make merry.' You'll forget that they're dead soon enough. He guides me into the throng with a steady hand. We move carefully through the press of bodies, pausing so the captain can greet old friends he finds among the crowd. Mr. Drummond has ordered by the time we reach the table, the waitress depositing three copper mugs filled with the captain's favored concoction of rum and gunpowder. To your health, the captain says. He throws his head back and takes a long draft. 
Mr. Drummond doesn't drink at first, simply sits with his back to the wall, eyes darting as he sweeps the crowd for familiar faces. He is a cautious man, hiding his nerves behind a scowl, always searching for those that would do him harm. The captain deposits me in a seat by the wall, the seat closest to Ben Drummond in his eyes of cold flint, deposited me here with a quick wink and a leer of pure joy, a leer that assures me I have little choice in the position. His game continues until he says otherwise. It's closer to Mr. Drummond's than I've been in a year, closer than I'd want to be under normal circumstances. I stoop in my seat, a clammy sense of fear in the pit of my stomach. Mr. Drummond leans his skinny weight onto the scarred driftwood of the tabletop. He steeples his fingers, closing them before his mouth, a lingering gesture from his days as a man of learning. "'Relax,' he says, soft enough that the captain can barely hear. "'You've got nothing to fear from me. Not here.' I nod once, but it does little to quell the nerves. There have been incidences aplenty aboard the Swallow, despite the captain's close watch. Too many close calls for me to take Mr. Drummond at his word. He makes a rough gurgle in the depths of his throat, a sound that's almost a sigh, and he turns his cold eyes towards me. Relax, Toby Truman, he says. There are darker pleasures in this world than you can offer, and plenty here to satiate even my appetites. The old houses are dangerous enough without worrying about me. Save your trembling for something that deserves it. There are stories aplenty about Ben Drummond, tales as dark and unfriendly as any you've heard over a midsummer campfire. They say he tutored a governor's child once before his appetites forced him to take the sea. They say he's been banished from ship after ship, cast off for deeds that even a buccaneer crew would not sanction. They say a great deal, these stories I've heard, and they imply much that is worse. But the stories of the old houses are darker still, and the stories about the pale flower are often darkest of them all, so I choose to believe him just this once. I let myself relax, let myself lean back into the rickety comfort of my chair, and sip my drink while the captain's order fills the table with rum and brandy and pipes filled with opium and fine tobacco. The captain breathes a white plume into the air, exhaling smoke like a contented dragon as we watch the crowd thin and disappear into the back rooms of the bordello. He has his boot propped on the driftwood table, a wooden cup dangling lazily from his fingers. I take my time and study the crowd, watching even the bravest sailor flinch when he's forced to address one of the silent waitresses. They are mangled creatures, the victims of violent deaths, brought back with hurried stitching and missing parts. Mournful, misshapen creatures, women who have been destroyed by their deal with the black spirits that sponsor the old houses. There are few men who are truly comfortable here, though the old houses have been pirate dens since the first buccaneer set foot upon the shore. They flinch, and they look away, unwilling to deal with the walking dead, regardless of their anxious glances toward the curtains and the whore's boudoirs. They are men who are plagued by fear, drinking and dancing only to escape the inevitable. It isn't long before I wonder why they've come. Only the captain seems truly at home. He revels in the promise of debauchery, in the willing violation of the natural order that the pale flower represents. Mr. Drummond does not revel, though he hides it well. His face is old leather, stretched across the skull, perfect for hiding the minutiae of expression. He drinks cautiously, refusing the captain's order to spare a pipe. 
stays alert to the impending possibilities of the evening. His drinks are pushed to my corner of the table, pushed across with quiet gestures he believes the captain does not notice. Drink, Mr. Drummond tells me. It will help with your nerves. I drink a little, choking on the angry tang of rum. I keep my eyes on the serving girls, on their horrific wounds and scars, on the heavy curtains that occasionally part and allow one of the throng access to the back rooms and the ladies who dwell there, on the grimace of fear and confusion that flashes across each patron's face, as though unsure exactly why they're taking the next step. Captain, I say, they look afraid. The captain is drunk now, truly drunk, rather than some feigned act. He roars with laughter. Of course they're afraid, the captain says, his roar cutting through the crowd like a shark's fin. They don't know the secret. There is an art to loving an old house harlot. Don't you agree, Mr. Drummond? Mr. Drummond gives a short, crowing laugh. He doesn't believe me, the captain says. It would appear not, Captain. The captain's lip curls into a sly smile, his eyes shining through the smoke haze. That's Ben's choice, he says. His to make, despite the danger. Danger, Captain, Mr. Drummond says. Danger, the captain says. Though not the type you'd think. True, there is always danger when sleeping with a woman, no matter who she may be. But the ladies of the old houses are different. They get beneath your skin. The memory of them gnaws at you during the lonely nights at sea, nibbling away your soul until there is nothing left. Therein lies the art. Learning to love them while the opportunity presents itself, then letting the memory go before it destroys you. Mr. Drummond scowls, thick brows meeting above his hooked nose. Love, Captain, he says. Love is the stuff of poetry and children's tales, not the base currency of the old houses. Where does one find love here, among the dead? The captain smiles, touches a finger to the side of his nose. Love is inescapable, Mr. Drummond, even in the old houses, for we are creatures married to the sea, unfit for loving ordinary women. The ladies are dead and reborn, unfit for loving an ordinary man. We are all outcasts in the eyes of God, so we love each other as best we can. It may not be the love of your poems and fairy tales, I'll grant you that, but what they offer us is true enough for my purposes. You're a romantic. Who isn't these days? We all bear the mark of romance, though we hide it like the first signs of plague. The captain peers at us from beneath the brim of his hat. Take note, young Toby. Mr. Drummond may doubt me, but he hasn't yet said I'm wrong. Mr. Drummond snorts, taking a long draught from his cup. He places it, empty, on the table. Misguided, he says, but not wrong. It was different once, before the Frenchman and his army of street whores. He stands and inclines his head, calling our attention to the curtain leading into the rear rooms. The madam is waiting there. I can make out a cluster of girls behind her, pale and regal, resplendent in shimmering gowns, and their necklaces of silver and gold. Overdressed for harlots, but the old houses have always known that women and wealth go hand in hand when it comes to raising a pirate's ardour. It's time, Mr. Drummond says. For the first time I can hear a slight current of fear below the croak of his voice. His left hand, his whipping hand, flexes and curls in anticipation of what's to come. My advice, boy, should you want to take it, 
Get what you need. Leave everything else behind. Remember that you sleep with the dead tonight, and there's precious little you can do to change that. Any feeling you see in them is just a hopeful figment, wished into being by your own desires, as ethereal and intangible as the mist on the sea. It is the captain who selects my partner, a dark-haired girl named Beatrice, with skin as pale and clear as the china dolls I played with as a child. She leads me into a boudoir that smells of clove incense and stale sweat, a heavy fugue that hangs in the smoky air, so thick I can barely see the rafters above us. Beatrice holds my hand between her cold fingers, leads me into the heart of the smoke where a lounge and bed lays waiting. Her cold hands guide me, seating me on the plump lounge whose leather is ripped and rent. "'Sit,' she says, and I am so shocked that I do so with mouth agape, like a wounded fish sucking for air upon the deck. "'Would you care for a drink? Something to smoke? We have some fine opium, if you'd prefer it.' Her voice is unnaturally dark and rich, a somber funeral dirge chafing to break into a lively waltz once the audience's back is turned. I shake my head, mute, and she arranges herself with languorous grace upon the threadbare cushions of the bed. "'You can talk,' I tell her, and I'm sure there's a quaver in my voice as I do so. She nods, smiling at me, her lips drawing into a winsome curve that belies her idle authority in this exchange. I feel a sharp heat rising into my cheeks. "'The ladies of the old houses do not talk,' I tell her. They are silent as the graves they were fo They are silent as the graves they were rescued from, and nearly as trustworthy when it comes to keeping a man's secrets. She shrugs, a practiced gesture that sees her bosom heave with fluid grace. We do not speak to men, she says. A necessity of the contract, but one that's good for business. Then why speak to me? She shrugs again. I wince, suddenly aware of how complacent I've been so long at sea, so long undiscovered and surrounded by men. It is easy to hide among sailors, among men unfamiliar with women beyond a few trysts at shore, willing to see a boy simply because they cannot imagine anything but in my place. The skin at the base of my neck itches. My face is scarlet. I am not yet ready to return home, to abandon the sea and take up the safe life my mother planned for me. The dead girl revels in my discomfort. There must be some mistake, I tell her, doing my best to keep the nerves from my voice. There must, Beatrice agrees, though it is strange, is it not, that a lady of the old houses can talk to a man? Break the compact without the spectre of death coming to claim her? Strange, I agree. Beatrice shrugs a third time, letting the slit of her robe fall open a little wider. The flesh of her chest is smooth and pale as cream, marred only by the livid scar of a bullet hole next to her left breast. I find myself tempted to reach out, to stroke the vivid knot of poorly healed skin. Perhaps, Beatrice says, stranger things have happened in a house such as this. She turns, drawing her robe closed, the legacy of her first death disappearing beneath layers of crimson silk. I draw my feet up, hugging my knees close to my chest, feeling childish for the first time in months. So, I say, quietly. So, Beatrice agrees. Her voice is like liquor now, lush and harsh and heavy with promise. 
what happens next? Traditionally, there is an exchange, Beatrice says. We do what is necessary to sate your desires, or what we can do to that end in the time we have. Some men remain a work in progress. And then? And then we are done, she says. Then you go on your way, sailing off on your ship, and the memory of our time together gnaws at you, just as your captain promised. It gnaws at your soul, and nibbles at your dreams, and swallows you whole in order to pay my tithe. Just like that? She nods, gravely, her voice devoid of mockery. Just like that, she says. It's something of a sacred duty. And what happens if you fail? I ask her. What happens if I come here desiring nothing? Beatrice smiles, leaning forward as though preparing to whisper a final secret. I lean in, close enough to taste the sea salt and pickling wine that lingers beneath the heavy scent of her perfume. Everyone desires something, she says. They don't come here if they don't. One pale hand curls around my hair, drawing me closer. She kisses me, and her lips taste like gravestones, like sodden dirt mixed with warm copper, like the hunger of a starving man. It is a good kiss, powerful, a lure to reel me into the unfamiliar territory of her bed. I know better than to follow, but it takes more strength than I have to resist. I succumb, briefly. We do not make love, though I allow Beatrice to unravel the tattered strips of my disguise. We do not make love, but her cold hands caress my face, my ribs, the hollows of my knee. We do not make love, but her kiss is cold against my lips and filled with promises. For a moment... I allow myself to feel hopeless within her grasp, writhing and twisting like a fish on the line that knows it will be drawn up onto the deck. Then it is over, halted, nothing more than a momentary weakness. Beatrice lays my head on the pillow, gently wraps me in the cold shadow of her embrace. We lie together, quietly, a narrow shiver running the length of my spine. She has discarded her robe, allowing me to see the puckered scar once more a ghost-pale reminder of a pistol shot to the heart. This time I do reach out, tracing the knotted flesh with my finger. It's strangely warm, as though touched by some lingering spark of fire from the lead slug that ended her life. "'Did you know them?' I ask. It's an incautious question, one that takes her off guard. Beatrice looks down, presses her finger against the old wound, rubbing it lightly with her cold hands. I knew them, she says, finally her voice a little more than a whisper. Not well, perhaps, but well enough. Do you remember, I ask? I mean, you hear stories. Girls sold to the old houses before their times, still living, even if they're told otherwise, their flesh left cold and clammy by magic to give the illusion of the grave. Beatrice smiles gently. I notice for the first time the reddish tinge of old blood on her teeth. I remember enough, she says. It isn't something you'd recall clearly, given the choice, but I remember enough to be sure, to know that they brought me back, called me home to uphold my side of our bargain, bound me with silence and duty in exchange for my life. A cold thumb presses against my forehead, resting in the space between my eyes. Where do you hear such stories, little pirate? It's my turn to shrug. And why are you interested? 
What do you care for the poor dead girls of Isla Tortuga? Beatrice studies me. There are stories about eyes and windows, so I know enough to close my own, to lock away the memories of my mother and her pale flesh, of the nightmares she offered me as bedtime stories until I was old enough to run away. Some days I can still hear her echo. All the old warnings she offered me, explaining that the world was a cold place for women and a colder place for a courtesan's child. With closed eyes, I permit myself to remember my mother. Her violet eyes, the soothing chill of her hands, the ghostly heartbeat that made a lie of her graveyard pallor. She hated my love of the sea, my infatuation with pirates and sailors, my soul that would not be tamed by books and tutors and fruits of her wealth. But it was a cold hatred, the final ember of an extinguished fire trapped beneath the eternal frost that chilled both her body and soul. I sometimes wonder if she wept when she discovered her child was a runaway. It seems unlikely. Beatrice is staring when I open my eyes, still waiting for an answer. I look at her, catching a glimpse of ghostly memories hemmed in behind her gray pupils. I see pain and sorrow, and not enough joy. The same echoes that lived in my mother's head, buried deep beneath the sultry languor of her eternal stare. Beatrice gives me a slow smile, disarming in its honesty. We have both given something away here, letting our secrets live a little closer to the surface than we'd like. When she speaks... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Her voice is little more than a whisper. 
How long have you been at sea, Tobias Truman? And though it has only been a year and three months, it feels like forever. The weight of the days bunching like a clenched fist deep in my chest. Beatrice touches a tear as it rolls down my face, holds it before me on the tip of her lily-white finger. This is not an answer, little pirate. Maybe not, I tell her, but everyone has the secrets, and the wise sell them as dearly as they can. I have been gathering tears for a year now, hoarding them up like my own private ocean. Beatrice takes me in her arms, cooing quietly as I scatter her bed with my gathered sorrow, a hundred tiny shards of salt water that I dare not carry back to the sea when I leave. Beatrice shows me to the hall when our time is done, closing her door behind me with a gentle smile and a farewell kiss. The madam waits nearby, ready to lead me away. It's a long hall, lined with doors, each leading to another boudoir, another pirate, another dead girl playing at life. I listen carefully as the madam leads me past them, straining my ears to pick up every heaving breath and grunting drive as client after client expends his seed. There are no women among the voices, no matter how I strain, just masculine moans and manly groans as the moment of climax is reached. For a moment, barely longer than the space of three breaths, I could swear I hear Mr. Drummond's hollow cackle. The sound is followed by the familiar snap of the lash, the wet sound of flesh flaying off bone. My steps falter, causing the madam to pause. She looks down at me, her eyebrow raised. "'Any desire,' she says. "'It's the role of the old houses. We try and fulfill any desire, and we take what we need in return.' He cannot hurt them. He wants to, I tell her. He wants to hear them scream. The madam offers me an elegant shrug. The dead do not scream, she says. They do not speak. They do not sigh. They are silent as the grave. This is immutable, even in the face of desire. So I've been told, I tell her. But they could speak if they wanted to. They could give him what they wanted. The madam regards me carefully, silent as the night. We stand there amid the whisper of a dozen clients behind closed doors, the muted buzz of the lounge in the distance. Eventually the madam nods. They could, she says, but they won't. It would be the end, the talking. No man would come here once the secrets are revealed. She stares at me her eyes ancient behind the thick layers of makeup. Do you understand, little pirate? Do you know what I'm saying? There is a flicker of breeze in the hallway, setting the candles dancing. I think my mother, powdered and cold, living out her life under my father's thumb. She wore the mask of a lady as it suited her, but there were precious few disguises that concealed her true nature. I look the madam in the eyes and nod. Reputations must be maintained. I tell her. The madam smiles. Yes, she says. I suppose they must. Then she takes my arm and she walks, returning me to the velvet curtain and the lounge beyond. The revel has been tempered by the passing of time, whittling away both noise and numbers until the room is near empty and the voice is muted. The captain is waiting for me, feet on the table, broad smile clamped around an ancient pipe. I sit down at the table, taking a long swallow of the mug he pushes into my hands. It's warm and harsh, like drinking fish scales. "'So that's that,' he says. 
Was it everything you expected, after the stories you've heard? I shrug, unsettled, wondering if I've left some gap in my disguise. Nothing is ever what you expect of it, I tell him. Why should this place be any different? The captain nods, the feather on his hat weaving a solemn dance. He pulls his feet off the table with a single, fluid gesture, climbing to his feet. Mr. Drummond will not likely emerge before dawn, the captain says. It's probably best that we don't wait. We should return to the ship, let you get a good night's sleep while you can. We break port in two days, and he's always worse after a night in Tortuga. I nod, getting ready to follow him. The captain lays an arm over my shoulder as I stand. Did you find what you were looking for, Tobias Truman? He gives me a wolfish smile, but his eyes are serious beneath the brim of his hat. I consider the question for a long moment, studying it as though he'd ask my opinion of a precious jewel. Perhaps, I tell him, but at least we can be sure that I got what I wanted. He nods, and I savor his interest, his desire to treat me as part of his crew. I'm acutely aware, even now, that it cannot last forever. I will get older, and with age comes secrets I can no longer hide. I do not have the stomach for a lady pirate's life, fighting to hold my place among the crew. What about you, Captain? Did you get what you wanted? The Captain smiles at me. Nothing more, nothing less, he says. Just as they promise. And he leads me out of the room, into the streets of Isla Tortuga, back to the ship that I can call home a little longer. I just love the way Peter delivers a pirate story that defies expectation at every turn and delivers the perfect antidote for a Harlequin romance novel. Our next story is The Green Square by Donald V.S. Duncan. Mr. Duncan lives in the fine city of New Westminster, British Columbia, with his wife and a mischievous cat. He holds degrees in English and landscape architecture, but life has taught him far more than university ever could. Ask about his stories and he'll tell you that they're all true, although not factual. Make of that what you will. A link to his website can be found on the Triple F. His story is read for us today by Graham Dunlop. Graham is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle, and he used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. And now, The Green Square by Donald V.S. Duncan. There were giggles and thrashing in the shrubbery. Alex looked around, trying to locate the source. The estate grounds might not be dangerous, but his daughter had more energy than sense. She could find trouble anywhere. Katie, he called. It was impossible to see more than a few feet. The grounds had never been orderly, but now, after a decade of neglect, nature had run riot. Paths were overgrown, the bushes were impenetrable, saplings sprouted everywhere. Above his head the canopy scarcely let in the sun. It was more wild wood than garden. Soon enough it would all be sorted out. The giggle came again, followed by more rustling. Katie, what are you doing? 
Catherine's response lilted through the interposed green, ignoring the command implied in her father's tone. Playing with my friend! Exasperated, Alex rapidly rolled the plans he'd been examining and tucked them under his arm. No trespassing signs were clearly posted all around the property, but children clearly had no respect for such things. With an estimate of his Catherine's position, he made his way around a thicket of roses, catching his sleeve on the thorns, tripped down a short flight of crumbling stone stairs, rounding the end of a hedge, and finally found his daughter turning circles beside a pond at the centre of the only remaining lawn on the property. She was an impressionable girl of six, tall for her age and willowy, with blonde hair cut in a bob. Today she was wearing a frivolous dress her mother had purchased with a matching pink ribbon in her hair. At the sound of her father's approach, Catherine turned towards him all smiles and joy. There was no one else in sight, but nearby bushes swayed suspiciously. "'Come out of there!' Alex demanded, addressing the wall of foliage beyond the pond. "'I don't think he wants to, Daddy.' "'I don't care what he wants. This is private property, and your friend has no business being here.' "'He lives here, Daddy.' "'Look at that,' Alex said, pointing at the ruined house just visible through the forest. "'No one lives there.' "'No, he lives here.' Catherine insisted as she indicated the garden around her. Alex moved to stand beside his daughter while scrutinising the bushes more carefully. Lowering his voice, he asked, What does your friend look like? He's really tall, she confided. Alex looked harder, his eyes narrowing. Tall like me, Katie? Yeah, and green all over. Alex relaxed slightly. He'd been assured that Catherine would outgrow this kind of nonsense. Just to be sure, he asked, green all over? Yeah, he has a green face and leaves for hair and a beard made of twigs, and he has these really cool hands that look like... Yes, nonsense. Alex had captured one of Catherine's wildly gesturing hands and was in the process of leading her away when something caught his eye. The wind had swept the branch aside, and for a moment he'd seen a face reflected in the pond. When he turned to look, it was gone. The branch had moved back again, but he was certain of what he had seen. Okay, I saw you. No more games. Come out of there. Alex addressed himself to the unpreen. Alex addressed himself to the unseen presence, and when there was no response, announced, "Fine. Let's see how you like playing hide and seek with me." Moving quickly, he circumnavigated the pond and strode towards the wall of green. There was another brief glimpse of someone behind quivering foliage. It was a dark face, half lost in the shadow. Some tramp was living in the shrubbery. Not for long. With one arm, Alex swept the screen of branches aside and stepped past, but his foot failed to find solid ground. The well tilted violently to the left as he fought to stay upright. The vegetation had hidden an ancient set of concrete stairs leading down into a grotto. Such things had been popular when the estate had been built, an artificial cave intended to mimic some antique shrine or holy well. Follies, they'd been called, and aptly named, in Alex's estimation. He landed hard on one hip and winced at the impact. The face looked down, mocking him. It was a visage sculpted from stone, once whitish, but now so discoloured with age and encrusted with lichen, 
that had blended near perfectly with the ivy around it. Only the angle of the light threw the features into relief. Alex looked his supposed vagrant in the eye and snorted in derision. This feature was not noted on the survey, but that did not matter. The equipment would make short work of it. Such sentimental trash had no place in the new scheme. He would scrape the entire block bare and build the future. That future would begin tomorrow. Katie, he called, is this your friend? Catherine was already at his side. The pink ribbon in her hair danced as she skipped down two steps to get a better look at the green face. She looked up and chortled with glee. One tiny finger pointed. He is silly. See? He has leaves coming out of his mouth. Isn't that silly, Daddy? Alex agreed that it was very silly. The whole thing was very silly and he had work to finish. All this was taking him away from the thousand details that required his attention. His daughter was there only because his ex-wife had some appointment or other. As a consequence, he'd been stuck with the child while trying to do his job. Pulling himself upright once more, Alex dusted off his trousers. Come on, Katie, it's time to go. I need to get back home to the office. I could stay here, Catherine suggested. He'll take care of me and we can play games. You can't stay here alone, Katie. I won't be alone. He's here, she said with special emphasis. He isn't real and soon he will be gone. All this will be gone. Concern crept into Catherine's eyes. She knew about her father's job, knew that he built new buildings, but this was perhaps the first time it had occurred to her that in order to build something new, something old must first be torn down. No! The sound was more a prolonged wail than a word. You can't do that! My friend lives here! This is his home! Alex had no time for this. She would learn in time. For the moment, Catherine would just have to deal with the loss of this little fairyland. He took her hand in his and dragged her out of the bushes. She protested and fought for freedom, but could do nothing against him. You must not, she insisted. Alex looked down at her to say something stern when he noticed the state of her stockings. They'd been torn by the brambles. Well, shredded was closer to the truth, and the white skin underneath had been cut. Concerned, he pulled her a safe distance from the hedge and knelt to inspect the damage. Little scabs were forming from ankle to knee. Does this hurt? Alex wanted to know, indicating the marks. No, <laughs> she giggled. They tickle. He said they would. Who? My friend. That was more than enough, Alex decided. He took her hand firmly once more and marched her back to the road where he bundled her into his Audi with stern instructions to stay put. Banishing all of this nonsense out of his mind, he slipped into the driver's seat and began the drive home. It was fortunate that home was nearby, less than a dozen blocks, in fact. It was a townhouse with a fine address and better resale value. But one does not buy a home alone. One buys into a neighbourhood, and Alex had been very proud of his new environs, with one exception. In the midst of the modern and the stylish and the exquisitely expensive, one old property blighted the landscape. It was an old estate whose grounds occupied an entire block. Both home and garden had once been palatial, 
but passing time, changing fashion, and poor maintenance had conspired to dispel past grandeur. Now the mansion seemed ready to tumble down, and the grounds had become a tangled green square. For a man who'd made his fortune converting the shabby past into the new and exciting, it was particularly galling to have such a ruin virtually on his doorstep. In fact, one of his first acts after taking possession of his new abode had been to approach the owners with a proposition for redevelopment. The deal would have been quite lucrative. To illustrate the point, he had developed an impressive presentation complete with conceptual sketches, cash flow projections, and most importantly, a cheque to be offered as a signing bonus. The elderly couple had listened politely to his proposition, looked over his paperwork with quiet disinterest, and then declined his offer. It had been quite remarkable. The owners had shown no interest in the money to be made. Rather, they had expressed considerable affection for their rotting home and wild landscape in terms that verged on the poetic. Preferring prose and spreadsheets, Alex had conceded defeat for the moment. When the husband had died a year later, Alex had renewed his offer to the widow, but with similar results. It was not until both had passed that the son finally saw reason and sold. Now Alex could finally make the neighbourhood whole. After months of planning and endless hours arguing with local officials and short-sighted neighbours, everything was in place for work to begin. Lot clearing would begin tomorrow. There was no time for child's play. When they arrived home, Alex sent Catherine up to her room and he went to his study. A mountain of paperwork awaited him and Alex relished the thought. Bringing order out of chaos, that was his purpose in life. Time passed largely unnoticed. In due course, the housekeeper announced dinner and Alex grudgingly left his desk. He arrived at the dinner table to find his daughter pouting on the far side. Under other circumstances he would have found her sullen silence annoying, but it was convenient today. Leafing through an engineer's report, he ate without tasting. It was not until the end of the second course that he finally noticed the state of his daughter's hair. It was a tousled mess and full of leaves. He did not recall it being in such a state when they'd returned home, but he could not be certain. "'Have you been outside again?' he demanded. "'No.' "'Your hair is full of leaves,' he said, as though pronouncing an indictment. Catherine raised a hand to explore her knotted tresses, and her eyes grew wide with wonder. Alex's eyes grew wide as well. His daughter's hands and arms were covered with the same scabs he'd seen on her legs earlier in the day. Tossing his napkin beside a half-finished dinner, Alex rounded the table to get a better look. It appeared to be a rash of some kind. Clearly the girl had been scratching rather than having the good sense to apply a suitable lotion. "'But I haven't, Daddy!' was an unconvincing argument, and followed by the equally unlikely, "'And it doesn't itch!' Alex knew better and took his daughter up to the ensuite and spent precious moments getting the leaves out of her hair. She complained and fidgeted and cried, but it had to be done. The leaves were not only tangled in, but also stuck in place with sap. She must have been rolling in the shrubbery to have created such a mess. It took the better part of an hour 
but he cleaned her up. By that time, she was sobbing and resentful. He was furious. He tied the hair up with the pink ribbon and turned his attention to the rash. Taking a tube of ointment, he coated her arms and legs with a generous layer. If the rash became any worse, he'd have to find someone to take her to a doctor. He did not have time for that himself. Sternly, he sent her to bed. She went like a martyr marching to her doom, grim and resigned to a terrible fate. He went back to work. There were still hours of reading and checking ahead of him, but concentration was a problem. He found himself listening for any sound from his daughter's room. All remained quiet. That made it even harder. Sometime around midnight he was finally forced to check on her. Catherine was in her bed sleeping soundly. He could just make her out by the light seeping in from the hallway. At least she would cause no more problem tonight. But as he stood there looking at her, he noticed that the rash was spreading further. The dark marks were appearing on her neck and face. There was no doubt now she'd have to go to a clinic in the morning. He took a step into the room and looked more closely. Poison oak? Poison ivy? Poison whatever she'd found, it would be gone in a day or two, along with every other green thing in that primeval thicket. Then he noticed Catherine's hair. It was knotted again, as though he had not spent an hour brushing it out, and once again it was filled with leaves. Twigs had also appeared in the unruly mass. He almost dragged the child from her bed for another grooming, but then decided he had neither the time nor the patience for such a procedure. She could sleep on it, and he would deal with the mess in the morning. Clearly a shorter haircut was in order, whatever her mother might say. No child of his was going to run wild like some heathen. Showing considerable self-restraint, Alex closed the bedroom door without slamming it. He was a rational man, and this problem would be resolved that way. In the meantime, he had to complete his preparations for tomorrow, and there was just one final document to review. Back in his study, Alex poured himself three fingers of scotch and settled down on the couch with the tree survey. Trees were usually the least of his worries. This project was different. Three generations before the short-sighted and slightly lamented widow had occupied the estate, it had been built by her great-grandfather. He'd been an eminent Victorian botanist, and imported seedlings from all corners of the globe to plant around his new mansion. In the years that followed, these twigs had grown into a forest of rare specimens. The report was explosive. Alex would never have guessed the trees might be the one thing to stop him. So far he had succeeded in hiding the fact that this one square block held more botanical treasure than any arboretum on the continent. Fortunately, there were few that could recognise the fact, and he was determined that the trees would fall before anyone could. No granola muncher was going to get in the way of this project. The trees around the central lawn were the most unique, and Alex had decided that they must go first. From there, the cutting would continue outwards until the lot was cleared. With luck, no one would realise what was being done until the job was nearly complete, and then there'd be no point in raising an objection. At some point in his review, Alex fell asleep. He was vaguely aware that he was still on the couch, but part of him floated back to the lawn by the pond. 
In his dream he watched the trees writhe as the saws cut them down and then dissected them into manageable pieces. Some tried to escape, pulling frantically at their roots. Others attempted to claw their way out of the carnage once they'd been felled. But the men with the saws were relentless and merciless. In their fear and anger, some of the trees tried to attack Alex, but he stayed by the pond well out of the reach of any limb, and soon the woodland had been reduced to orderly piles of timber. Only one green thing remained. There was one figure that did not belong, and it was watching Alex. It had the face that he'd seen carved above the grotto, but this was no face of stone. It was flesh and foliage. The body that bore it was more like that of a bear than a man, massive and knotted with muscle, and all over covering in leaves and grass, as though a mountain had come to life. When it rushed at Alex, he knew there was no escape, except by waking. With a shout and a gasp, Alex sat bolt upright on the couch. The report he'd been reading tumbled away to land on the floor with a thud. Then there was a surreal moment where dream and waking worlds faded one into the other, terror fading into annoyance. It was morning. Alex glanced at the clock above his desk. It was late morning. The crews would be assembling at the site by now. Trying to shake the last of the drowsiness out of his head, Alex staggered into the hall and halfway up the stairs before he noticed that the front door was open. Retracing his steps down, he frowned at the leaves trailed across the carpet. No doubt this was his daughter's doing. She'd gone out to play, created a mess, and left the door gaping. Katie! he roared. There was no response from upstairs. Damn it! Alex took the stairs two at a time as he ascended. He would straighten his daughter out and then drive to the site to see that things were going as they should. The scattering of leaves continued all the way up and along the upper hall, all the way to the bedroom door, all the way to the bed, which was empty but for more of the foliage. Katie! There was still no answer. It was then that his phone rang. Alex pulled it from his pocket and saw with exasperation that the site foreman was calling. Taking one last look around the empty bedroom, he stepped out into the hall and flipped the phone open. Yes, Alex said by way of a greeting. We're ready to start, but there's just one thing, he was informed by the voice on the other end. What? Did you want to save the little tree by the pond? What What tree by the pond? N never mind, I don't care, I want them all cut down. I told you that. It's just that this tree has pink flagging tape on it. I don't care what it has on it. Cut it down like all the rest, Alex concluded, and closed the phone with a snap. He began down the stairway again to search outside for his wayward daughter. Where had that child gotten to? Ooh, Mother Nature and the Green Man have a way of reclaiming their own, with interest, don't they? Well, that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but don't change it and don't sell it. If you like what we bring you, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. Buttons are on the website. Please pop over and give us a little something. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. 
Not the same beverage. I'll have a new one by then. Until then, take it easy. Keep smiling at the stars. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 